Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Jason Troy. 1% of organizations have discovered the right rocket fuel that propels them to continually scale quicker, increase revenue, innovate faster, and crush competitors five to ten times larger. What is it? They've created an environment that prioritizes trust, caring, accountability, and high standards to maximize employee performance and engagement every single day. They do this through four major ways, psychological safety, vulnerability, truth-telling, and operationalized values. Jason has created a repeatable process to help organizations of any size to create this very quickly. He's learned how to do this over the past 25-plus years. He has in-the-trenches experience helping build a billion-dollar company and working with many Fortune 100 companies. He spent 15-plus years working in marketing leadership positions in Silicon Valley, working with influential leaders such as Steve Jobs of Apple and Pixar, Reed Hastings, the CEO at Netflix, Mark Cuban, and Mark Hurd, the CEO at HP. He's the best-selling author of Social Wealth, a how-to guide on building extraordinary business relationships. He's also created the Breakthrough Employee Engagement and Team Building Game, Cards Against Mundanity. More than 10,000 employees use it to skyrocket teamwork, communication, and productivity, both internally and with third parties, such as clients, prospects, and partners. So welcome, Jason Troy. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready to speak to your fantastic tribe. Great. Now, Jason, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. I mean, like I think every entrepreneur and person in today's business world has been a very windy up and down road. And I started originally off going to law school and getting my master's in communications. And I decided that that's not something I wanted to do. So I went west out into the technology world and I got out there and worked with some fantastic people like Steve Jobs, Mark Cuban. I mean, just a whole host of pretty fantastic and incredible leaders and saw a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of great leadership qualities and styles and a lot of very poor ones. And so it was a, intense time being out in Silicon Valley during the gold rush. A lot of learning. A lot of learning, a lot of lessons that I learned and a lot of incredible people that I got to interact with and learn from as well. And then I moved to Dallas and I was working for HP. So I got to work inside of a very large global company for a while. And then 
you know, I decided that I love to work with people and, you know, someone mentioned coaching as an option and I decided, well, I'll try to do it as a side hustle. Mm-hmm. So I took it as a very small niche and something I was doing here was raising a lot of money for charity through networking and just meeting people. So I decided to just bite off a small chunk, which was really how to build a great social life because that is relationship building, getting to know people, building trust, having rapport, you know, helping people. I mean, all of those things that you need to do. And Mm -hmm. it had an 80% overlap with the business world, right? So what you do in your business lesson personal is pretty much all one. There are some obviously differences, but there aren't that many. And so I found someone who had an existing business. I tested out some stuff. I wrote a book. And I just had the person put their name on it, essentially, and just did some other products and things like that. And then, you know, like every partnership, they usually all fall apart. And then I decided to go on my own. And I had been writing a book on business networking that was Social Wealth. It's out now for probably a year and a half. From there today, you know, I'm working with really senior leaders, managers, directors, business owners, and entrepreneurs on their management and leadership issues, and also a significant amount on their building really extraordinary teams. Mm -hmm. And teams both internally inside an organization and externally as well, meaning their relationships with customers, partners, prospects, and really anyone outside the business. Mm. So currently you have your own company and you coach high-level leaders. Yes. You said that you started to look into coaching. I know for me as an educator, it took some shifting for me to really embrace what coaching is because teaching is so different from coaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what coaching is? Well, I think coaching is really, I mean, a combination of one, you have to push yourself significantly outside of your comfort zone. And it is a constant learning. So in essence, I think really the greatest coaches I've seen are at one spectrum, university professors and researchers. They're always dabbling in something. They're building tools. They're building processes. They're testing them out. Um, Just like an entrepreneur or someone in a startup world will. And then on the flip side of that, they're able to do two things very effectively. One, I think, is to help people fish right, for themselves, mm. and then also fish for them. Because mm-hmm. initially, the biggest challenge is we have to suspend our beliefs and judgments and take a leap of faith mm-hmm. and work against our past patterns, our resistance, and whatever those might be to get evidence that something new is going to work. Yeah. And you just can't have someone do that on their own. You have to help them do it, and then they're much more apt to jump in. You know, and I think probably the final part of it that underlies it is that all change comes from the inside out and you have to create quick behavioral change from people. You don't have uh, what a therapist has about time, right? Because Mm -hmm. usually in a therapeutic environment, people are not coming to mass conclusions very quickly. It's usually over a process, which can be six months, a year or more. When you're in a coaching modality with someone, you have to do that in weeks and you have to build trust with them super fast and get into the issues that are really bogging them down. And they're typically always internal ones. You can look at someone who's a poor leader and that's looking on the leaf on the tree, not the root. So when you get into the root cause analysis, it's because they 
are a poor listener because they grew up in a household of six kids and they had to yell over everyone to get heard. And so they learned early on the payoff was not listening, got me what I wanted, but now it's sabotaging their success. And they're unaware of that because self-awareness is the number one predictor of success. And it's also the lowest amount for individuals, right? 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% are. And it's <laughs> lower for men than women by far, yeah, probably yeah. like three to four. It's, uh, so that also makes a huge difference in today's world since, you know, I mean, there are significant more amount of women leaders than there were before, but there are more men. And so that's probably, it's a huge problem. And so, you know, that self-awareness piece, it's the reason why I believe that to be in leadership, you should have good coaching. So um, that's important. All right, Jason, great. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, I would say my leadership style is I'm accountable for my own processes and interactions with other people. I think that's the first piece of this. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I try to be empathetic and really understand what someone else is going through in order to try to motivate them to take the next steps and point it out what is in it for them. When you can start to do that, you can reach people where they're at and bring them across the chasm and across the things that they fear, that they resist, that they're worried about, and a lot of survival patterns and things that go on in our brain. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a necessary quality to have. And so and I think the other thing is you have to be vulnerable and you have to be able to build trust. I think you have to be willing to tell people the truth. That's important. The vulnerability, that's something that people talk about a lot. How does that show up in your leadership? You know, Brene Brown talks a lot about it. It's funny because of all the stuff she reads, I probably have one disagreement with her. If I ever saw it, I would talk to her about it because I I don't quite think she has this right. Vulnerability, the challenge with that is in many ways, it is event-driven, meaning that you have a disagreement with someone, you have a problem with someone, there is some issue going on or problem if you deal with a health issue or a company revenue issue or might it be, but that's out of your control. Those are things that happen. And of course, they're going to happen, you know, in a regular cadence in your life. But I think self-disclosure and you sharing information is really the key part of vulnerability that's always within your grasp. And Google did a study on this in 2012 to 2014 called Project Aristotle, and they wanted to see what made up their most high-performing teams, like what qualities they had, because obviously if they could recreate those and promote those people and build those systems and processes, they would organically build the company up and create significantly more revenue and profit. And what they found is that there weren't any individual traits. It was about the social cohesion and connection, and it was about the vulnerability that created psychological safety in teams. And psychological safety is just the freedom to speak up and share your mind and know people on a deep personal level and ask questions and do those types of things, create up psychological safety. And so for me, vulnerability is opening up and sharing and being the first one to do it. And how does that differ from what Brene Brown says? 
Well, I think she talks about saying that self-disclosure is not something that's required of you in a business workplace. She mm -hmm. says, you sharing deep things about yourself to other people, you don't need to necessarily do that. And I completely disagree with that because of getting to know the best leaders in situations and talking and going through it and doing deep research on it. And I know she has too. I don't think that's an option. I think that if in your life, for instance, you've had a child die, if you are on a leadership team with people and you don't share that, you can't be yourself and authentically show up because that is a major incident in your life that happened. And when people don't know that, they don't know you. I think you have to show up and share people the biggest points in your life because you can't be you if you're hiding part of who you are. You'll have part of your armor on because they won't know who you are. And those experiences are critical to building trust. Mm -hmm. And the people who know you the best in your personal life know that story. Business works based on relationships and mm -hmm. trust. It's no different. Yeah. And to have the highest level of trust with people, they have to know you inside and out. And it requires them to do the same thing. And if you want to opt out of that, I just don't see working with hundreds of leaders and seeing things fall apart and having to raise them up or going to soaring to heights. Those people don't do it. One of my clients here is a billion dollar company and the COO had the CEO be the minister at his wedding. The CEO online got registered to be able to marry them, right? And he said some great words. I mean, that's a pretty intimate thing to do. That is the types of things that people have to do in today in business because it's a new requirement. So, right. Educators are big proponents of Brene Brown. And I know that one of the things that I understood, and maybe I understood it differently, is that you're not just vulnerable for the sake of being vulnerable, but for a purpose, okay. right? So um, I think that's what she was getting at. But I appreciate your stance and your perspective on vulnerability because we need to do that. And that's probably one of the hardest things to do. Now, Jason, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? You know, I think it's a Maya Angelou quote, the quote on, you know, it's not what you say, it's not what you do, but how you make people feel. Yes. And I think the point of that is, is that when you really look at research and data and how people work, emotions are driving the car mm -hmm. and, you know, cognition and behavior and logic are in the back seat. And unless you fully understand that, you don't really understand business and leadership and management because there's a lot of people that say they do things logically and factually, but when you dig into it, it's their own beliefs, which mm -hmm. are emotional. Right. They right. just made it logical because they see it working and they see other things not working, which they define as illogical. Mm -hmm. But I think that what we have to do is figure out there's the truth, meaning one plus one equals two. And if I went to every person that's listening to this, there's no one who'd say to me that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. But if we looked up at the sky and like it was sunny, but it was partly or clouds there. There's some people that might say it's sunny. There might people say it's partly cloudy. They might say it's just cloudy, right? I mean, you can get a whole different thing. So that's a belief. And the problem is we call it our, our beliefs with the truth and we call it the truth mm -hmm. and we call it a fact. And then we call it logic 
when it's really our own emotions. And I think when you understand that, you can be much more effective as a leader and as a manager in today's world, realizing that it's about understanding your own emotions and your emotional landscape. And if you don't master that and become really, really, really good at that, which goes back to your self-awareness, you cannot be an extraordinary leader, period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is a very difficult process to get to. And that is not done in a couple sessions. That is done over years and decades. It can take a lifetime. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you. And I would add that because it is very difficult, some people are fearful of it. Well, yeah, because emotions become fearful because they haven't done the work yet. Yeah. And when you don't look in your accountability mirror and you don't dig deep into your past and understand where you came from, and the decisions that went on and the things that were just patterns or things you're inherited, when you don't understand that all it becomes all scary. And then when you don't understand how your brain works, that it's mainly made up of survival patterns, meaning back in caveman days, people were worried about just living. And the yeah. thing today is the same risk does not come with life, right? Walking out your door back in caveman days, you die. And today, that's most unlikely going to happen, right? But our Depending brain- Depending on where you live. Yes, it's right. true. But in general, mm -hmm. even then, it's not the same level of risk that yes. it then were all the time. But your brain does not understand the difference, right? Right. Once yes. you start to understand all these things, I think it really changes- your ability to engage, to lead other people mm -hmm. in effective, whether that is your organization of one or whether it's an organization of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Well said. Now, Jason, can you tell us about a leader who inspired you? You know, I'd have to say there's probably a lot of people that have inspired me over time. And I think there are aspects of those people mm -hmm. that I find great. When I was at Apple and I saw Steve Jobs, his faith in getting a company that had no evidence that they could be successful in creating a vision and getting people to believe it, something pretty fantastic to be able to do and to galvanize someone around that. And that took a bunch of failures, getting fired from Apple, all the mm -hmm. other successes, and then going to Pixar and being there and realizing that without the other people that were there, he couldn't have been successful either. And I think there was a lot of knowledge that accumulated up to that moment that would never have happened. But I think that was a pretty poignant point in my leadership life of seeing that. I had another organization that I was working as consulting. They were having a lot of challenging times. And instead of laying people off, people took voluntary pay cuts for periods of time and some people stepped up and they took more time off technically right while working in order to keep the company going and they turned it all around. But I think for leader inspire people to do that and then people to do that and to step up it was pretty amazing to see that built into humanity. I have a client mm -hmm. now who, you know, went in front of the whole company, was an extremely vulnerable about the state of the company and what things needed to change with people and partners and people they had. And people pretty much just jumped on it. And the company made just amazing leaps and bounds since that point. But it required him to tell the truth, be very candid, 
and be very vulnerable and open with people and not worry about whether they accepted it or whether they didn't, but this was just what they had to do in order to take mm -hmm. the next step. It sounds like these types of leaders who really value the people they lead by telling them the truth and also giving them options to step up and to lead themselves. Yeah, the caring part of it's probably one of the things that I think people miss. Probably three years ago, with all of my clients and former clients, I went back and I asked people who reported into them, you know, why do you stay up late working for them? Why do you stay late helping other people? Because I really want to understand what's driving people. Sure, there were people that it was about their own personal growth and success, right? What's in it for me? But what was amazing was every single person, when I drilled down, and I had to drill down very far, so this was not an answer they would have given you with a couple questions. But when I got down to it, what they all said was they worked so hard because they didn't want to disappoint either their manager or their manager's manager or a leader in the company. Disappointing other people is probably one of our greatest fears and one of our greatest motivators beyond anything else. And I didn't really understand the power of it until I had all these people essentially saying the same things in different organizations, different titles, different roles, different industries. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has to do with those people caring about them. Just like in your personal life, letting someone down that you love and care about is probably the worst feeling that we can have, especially when we know that there was something we could have done different right. within yeah. our power to do it, not something that we could not have done. Right. I mean, it's the same thing with us, right? You wouldn't follow someone who didn't really value you. Yes. In the same way, we as leaders need to value those people around us. So I appreciate that. Now, Jason, what's the best advice you've ever received? Someone told me once that life's about the contribution that you make, because once you have a contribution mindset, you stop getting attached to the outcomes and you stop getting in your own way. You start thinking about like what's logical or probable, and then you start asking yourself, okay, well, what could be possible? And it allows you to do things that you never thought could ever be done before and make the impossible possible. And we hear stories about that, like when a mother lists a car for her kid underneath it or whatever it might be. And sure, that's some fight or flight. But I also think there's something inside of this that rise up when we don't get in our own way. And when we're attached to an outcome and it's just about us, it's about our own growth. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't push us to the point because there's no disappointing yourself. Right. It's not the same thing as disappointing someone else. Letting someone down who cares about you is much greater than letting down yourself, right? And all yeah. these things. And I think when we're part of some bigger purpose and some big team and organization and the social connection, all the data shows you that that's where we're at. And Harvard did a 70-year research on the number one quality that brings people the most amount of happiness and it's social connection by far. There's no That's second, right. right? So all those things I think go back that it's about the contribution mindset and being a part of people that buy into that because then really anything is possible. And without that, you're never going to reach the place that you could be in. Great advice. Now, Jason, as a coach who works with high-level organizations, what does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you 
build and sustain one? I mean, I think having a great team is a requirement to doing extraordinary work. I don't think it's an option. And I spent, you know, three, probably now going on four years of intensive research and trying to figure out how to build it. And I think what you do is you have to find the lever to build trust at the highest level. Mm. And how you do that is you have to accelerate vulnerability is how you build high levels of trust super quickly. You build that level with vulnerability with someone and accelerate it through sharing, verbal sharing, Mm -hmm. not activities themselves. You can go do a team building activity, but that doesn't really matter because the only matters is a conversation. You'll never go back and say, wow, that was the best trust fall I did or that was the best Legos I ever built. But if someone told you that story about their father or mother or their personal hero or the biggest setback they had or something else, like those are the things that resonate with us because we're emotional creatures. That's right. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top-level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Another way to look at it is if you are with another individual, right, that you really care about and you could never say I love you to them, think about how that would change the dynamic of your relationship. Because you can do all the things to someone else that shows that you love them, but until you tell them, they never know. And it's that moment it crystallizes when the words are used. And there's a couple other things to take a look at this. One, everyone's probably met someone within five or 10 minutes and they felt like they've known them their entire lives. Yes. Or they've known them really well. And what happened in that experience was someone was vulnerable and they could have shared something really small, like where they grew up, something about their family, just some experience that may be really small. And then the other person was vulnerable. And what they did was they took some big leaps somewhere in that conversation. And so in those five or 10 minutes, they shared what most people do in 20 or 30 conversations. And so what they did was they accelerated that vulnerability, which Mm -hmm. skyrocketed trust through sharing. And you can think about a third way in terms of the best team you've ever been on your life, whether that's in your personal life, in your professional life. Think about the people on that team and how you felt about them, the connections, the belonging, the feelings. And think about what you accomplished based on, you know, the resources you had or the odds against you or whatever happened. I think you'll see in both instances, one, you accomplished a lot with either very little resources or your backs against the wall or something really difficult. And how you felt about those people was a very strong emotion and connection. And so I think you have to do that again through sharing, and caring with people. I created this game because I found this research study by Professor Arthur Aaron back in 1997, and he was trying to build 
interpersonal closeness and intimacy between people. And so he did some different experiments. And one of the experiments he did was he had people sit across from the table from each other. And their were original study was 54 grad students and they were complete strangers. They didn't know anything about them. And they asked each other 36 questions over 45 minutes. And, you know, the questions were pretty vulnerable. Like one of the last questions was, tell me three things that you like about me, which is pretty hard to tell a complete stranger that you just met, right? Right. But what happened is they surveyed people before and after, and 30% of the people rated the relationship with a complete stranger as the closest relationship in their life. And he's done it dozens and dozens of times in different settings and different geographies with ages and everything else. And the data is pretty much the same. And that is pretty mind-blowing to think that that's possible, right? That's the same thing if I took any person listening to this. We walk down to your local coffee shop. I grab three people out of line. And I could tell you I could get you a best friend. Mm. And I could. But I've actually done it. So it's all possible to do that. And I think that's the key when it comes to building teams. You don't have the foundational layer there. Mm -hmm. The rest of it doesn't matter because you can't do anything else when you don't have a high level of trust built and you Mm -hmm. have to do it initially because organically can it happen? Of course, but they're very rare and Mm -hmm. it's very haphazard. And the one thing you learn in business is if you can't operationalize it, it's not real because I can't guarantee it. And that means odds are your business will underperform and your team will underperform. Mm-hmm. So if you do some simple steps and really get back to our personal life, this is going to work. Because at the end of the day, the other part of this is when you start doing these activities, what happens is you take acquaintances People who might not know each other, but psychologically you put them in their inner circle because mm-hmm. they know more information than anyone else does, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. you ask strangers you didn't know questions like, tell me about the biggest lesson, most important lesson you've learned in the last year. Tell me about the biggest setback you've had over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your personal hero and why that person is your hero, right? If you ask questions like that, I bet probably no one in your life could answer all of those questions. And so if a stranger knows that, they're going to psychologically be in a place where they're with everyone else. You don't even realize it's going on because that's just what the human brain does. So when you're trying to build a team, that's where I go first because that is the outcome of when you look at the greatest teams. It's a social cohesion and connection and knowing each other. It's not about their IQ if they went to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, what their EQ is, all the rest of it, it comes down to their interactions with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what people fail to really understand. And I think that's the problem, even hiring and retention and everything else is doing it, then it's much easier than you think. It just requires you to sit down and start asking questions. I absolutely agree. I mean, these questions are really important to ask. They do build those connections. Um, And I think we're growing a bit more in that than we were before. I think we are asking those questions. Now, you're not only a coach, you're an author, and you created a game. Now, can you tell us a bit about your latest book and your game, and where can we find them? 
my book Social Wealth is on Amazon mm-hmm. and it's old. I think it's nearing over 60,000 copies now. And it's really how to build great business relationships. It can help you in your personal life as well. And it really is a blueprint to take you through all of the steps, questions to ask, things to do. So you can do it. And essentially it puts you in the place of understanding what really people who are extroverts can do or people who are really um, masters at doing this Mm -hmm. and allows you to see in their brain step-by-step breaking it down, what they're doing. So you can either replicate it or you can take steps and develop your own style to get there. And I imagine it works well with educational organizations. Oh, yes. Right. Because, I mean, you need this no matter what, because Mm -hmm. education is the same way. You have to learn to work with people, colleagues, people above you, people externally, parents, I mean, children, I mean, everyone Mm -hmm. else. It's really same thing, right? I mean, you just have to apply it in a fashion that's going to meet the needs of the people around you and whatever it is that you need to accomplish and get done. And then the game you can get for free on my website, and I'm actually going to be launching some physical playing cards along with it. It's called Cards Against Mundanity. And what it is is a group game that you can accelerate trust through vulnerability and sharing. Mm. And 12,000 people have gone through it in tons of major companies like Google, Amazon, Southwest Airlines, Gillette, I mean, on and on. And you can play this in groups. It doesn't really matter how big. You can break them down into smaller groups or bigger groups. And they ask really vulnerable questions. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty magical to see when people start sharing what can all happen. And it's built off that study by Professor Arthur Aaron that I mentioned. And I think for people, they'll find it to be a very useful tool to build high-performing teams because without the foundational layer of really having that trust, candor, truth-telling, and psychological safety, you just don't have any high-performing teams out there. I haven't found one yet. I mean, I'm sure there probably is somewhere, but it's not a long-term success. It's probably a short-term success, and they're probably underperforming where they could be. So this game essentially allows you to get to that place of what do the top 1% teams do, no matter what industry, no matter what it is. And obviously you can apply this again with third parties too, right? Because you can apply this with people outside your organization by asking them the right questions to elicit feelings and emotions and get to know them in a way that you couldn't near as fast as this so so it accelerates connection which is important because we don't have that much time especially you know in education we're, we're so short on time time is gold so i appreciate that now tell us your website jasontroy.com so it's jason t-r-e-u.com perfect okay now you spoke about sharing and vulnerability can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life? You know, a, probably a big challenge was I had a partner that I was doing business with and how do you break that off and how do you move forward? And I think that the challenge was I didn't believe in myself enough and I didn't do enough of my accountability mirror work and looking inside of myself. And so when I did... I realized that instead of being Batman, I was being Robin. 
I realized that the requirement for me to be successful and to reach my heights was I had to take the leap of faith and be Batman, regardless of whether I believed I could or not, I had to just do it. And that's what I did. And then that was a game changing experience for me, changed my business, changed my life in a really positive way, even though it was coming out of an extremely stressful period of time. So Jason Troy, the Batman. Yes. <laughs> All right. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? I constantly read. I constantly test things. I'm constantly having conversations. I think you have to push the outer limits of what's going on to understand things. I just think that that is a requirement to spend enough time on it. And obviously it's going to ebb and flow, right? Because I think lifelong learners, what they understand is another big thing that people don't is that one, there's a time for massive immersion. And then there's a time for putting all of that information to work and testing it. And you really can't do both simultaneously because there's too much work. You have your own life, you have your own business, you have everything Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. So it has to ebb and flow. And that's how you can develop new tools, practices, games, other things like that. And I think the requirement is to do that all the time. And I think that is really hard because I don't think there are that many instances of people that you see doing that. It's easy to get away with it. I think you'll see people like Tony Robbins who got away from it and he came back to it with his financial book. He wasn't really doing the things that he had been doing before in terms of what I was watching him do. And I think he realized he had to make some changes too, to be more relevant, you know, not rest on what he had done for a long time, you know, press the boundaries. And I think that's where the difference between extraordinary people and people who are really good, the difference is their ability to learn, take information, test it, and then help people get to the next level. And what are you learning now? Well, a huge piece of it, I'm still pretty immersed in is just building teams and really understanding the levers of how to do that and how to help people do that really quickly, right? And the fastest period of time without it always having to be me teaching them or coaching them or giving them information mm-hmm. per se in a, like a setting. How can I do that in a way that can help them do it on their own without any intervention for me? Way that help them build their own style. And so, you know, that's a huge piece. The other part of it is self-awareness. The self-awareness piece is really hard because a lot of that requires one-on-one help. You can get someone aware, but to help them get through blind spots and past patterns, mm-hmm. it's really difficult. And so I'm working on another process to help people. Part of it through becoming like their own superhero. Mm-hmm. So they take leaps of faith and suspend judgment, mm-hmm. um, and develop like kind of their own character and just mm-hmm. take bigger leaps of faith and try new things on their own without having me there with them to go through a one-on-one. I think that's been really hard. I think just overall as an industry to get it away from someone who can help themselves on their own because it's supremely complex. And I think there's limitations in Mm -hmm. that, but it can at least help people take the leaps and get some of the results. I think that's something significant in that. Thank you. Now, Jason, if there were something you could change in education, what would that be? I talked to 
mm-hmm. a well-known researcher out of University of William and Mary about this actual question. And what's really funny is that over in Asia, they're now copying our learning models from the 60s and 70s and 80s in the US mm-hmm. and getting rid of their model, which is testing. Because mm-hmm. what they found is that what happened in creating Silicon Valley, why they couldn't do it is because of our innovation and creative thinking. They had smart people, but they couldn't put together the same way we could nonlinear think. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem today with all this testing that goes on is that it's requiring someone to fit in a linear model in a box. And the biggest successes in life are nonlinear and they're all over the place. And that is not how life works. And right. I think that if you can get people to learn, explore, open their mind and start to do things, you'll find great things. And what's really interesting too on top of this is the greatest tech people I know that are super duper smart all do things in the creative aspect. Like they play music, they paint, Mm -hmm. they draw, they write. And that is because they learn and all told me the same thing that that creative outlet spurs on their technical thinking. Yes. And I think that that part of it is really missing education and it's getting lopped away because mm-hmm. everyone wants to put things in some result bucket that they can put on some graph or pie chart when that is just not how we learn and not how success is built. And I think if we could do that, I think teachers could be much better at their jobs. It would push them to really perform at higher levels. Plus, I think they would go to work and love their job and so it educate <laughs> yes <laughs> happier <Bad>. teachers <laughs> happier <laughs> teachers happier students yes agreed <laughs> all right so jason what have you read watched or listened to that our listeners should as well and why any by Brene brown's a great book i think amy edmondson has written a great book she's a harvard researcher it's called the fearless organization and it's really how to build great organizations that speak up, share, and are candid. And organizations there are pretty much anything. Like education is one of those organizations in any school system or any process there. So that, to me, I think are two really good books. Two great authors. Yes. Thank you so much. Now, Jason, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I run a lot. So I just actually picked that up. November of 17, I needed something personal. It was really hard to do. And running actually helps a lot because mm-hmm. you have time by yourself. Or even if you're running with other people, you have time to think. And it really gets you doing it. The other thing is pretty frequently I'll go on road trips, meaning work trips where I'll drive versus fly. And mm-hmm. that helps me think. Unless I absolutely have to, I don't do Wi-Fi on a plane. So it mm-hmm. helps me start to prioritize and look at things. You know, I do meditate here and there. I don't do it on a regular basis. I do get some coaching or help as well. And usually at this point, there are very specific things for a project or a process or something that I need to work on. I think Mm -hmm. everyone has to find something that ends up working for themselves. But I think when you love what you do and are passionate about it, you can work a lot more and a lot smarter and a lot more creatively. That will help you become much more successful over the long term. But I also think you have to be ready for a very long term ride in today's world in order to break through 
to create something that's really fantastic. And I think we're lulled to sleep with all the great stories. I live in Dallas and one of my favorite teams is the Dallas Mavericks. And one of the players, Dirk Nowitzki, he's now a famous NBA player, is retiring at 41. And they were talking about how his first 13 years in the NBA, um, before they won a championship and no one expected them to, that he was considered not a joke, but more of an underperformer. He was a long, lanky kid who came over from Germany. And he never really got the respect other players did that were as good. And so Mm -hmm. that defining moment, I think, changed everything in people's mind. But Mm -hmm. it took 13 years. And it took 13 years of incredibly hard work. Five years before they won the championship, they lost in game six of the finals, and they essentially collapsed. Mm-hmm. And he had to come back from, you know, that and, you know, people calling him a failure and, you know, everything else. And I looked to myself and saying, that's probably the thing we all have to tell ourselves. This is a very long ride. Yes. And so when you look at what are the responsibilities and mindset, it's that you have to be very resilient and determined and be willing to go to places that you've never gone before for an extraordinary and extended period of time. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't create something great. Everyone listening here is capable of extraordinary and great work. They just have to put in the time, effort, and be resilient over the long term in order to see that through. That's, I think, probably one of the greatest challenges of our time now is because we see everything on a Facebook newsfeed or an ESPN highlight and we don't ask the question, well, where did their journey start from? Right. And this culture of instant gratification is also something that we're up against. Completely agree. And it's funny because I asked one of my clients here who has built up a billion and a half dollar company and he's the chairman. And I asked him, I said, so tell me about starting out early right, in your company and what that required you to do. And he had to leave a big-time job. For six months, he ate tacos at essentially a 7-Eleven. Well, it's called a stop-and-shop in Houston, but Mm -hmm. that's what he ate at. And he lived in a rat trap where his TV was a coat hanger for his antenna. He was telling me that and all some other stories. And I said, how many people have asked you that story to go through it in the depth and to talk about the early days when you were doing this? And he was like, really, no one ever. And I think that's telling, right? Because mm-hmm. how many people you ran into that could have asked him that question? And really, no one does because no one wants to take a look and seeing it, right? And to get the company to where it was took him like 15 years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> He wasn't sitting around having probably lifetime wealth from day one. Mm-hmm. And it made her setbacks. The company almost went bankrupt, right? So like everything didn't really come together in order to last couple of years. It's easy for us to be lulled in the sleep to look at where someone presently is and assume they've always been there. Right. Thank you, Jason. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? You know, I would probably tell myself, learn to embrace being uncomfortable and moving into more uncertainty much earlier Mm -hmm. and be willing to question your beliefs and belief system because what you think might be right might not be right. And I'd say probably the third thing is meet people where they're at, not where you want them to be. Yes, that's so important. 
All right. So Jason, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say to first go home to people that you care about in your life and start asking them more deeper questions that are much more vulnerable. Questions such as, who is your personal hero and why? What is the most important lesson you've learned in the last year? What's the most vulnerable moment you've had in your life and what happened and how has it shaped you, right? And I would start to ask questions like that to get to know people and show them that you really care and find Mm -hmm. out more about where they've come because their experiences shape your interactions and you don't really understand those. And therefore it's difficult to have the relationship that you really truly want with them unless you get there. I would say the second thing is this week, do something to make yourself feel really uncomfortable. Go up and talk to a stranger open doors for people and just say hi. Whatever is going to get you outside of your comfort zone, try to do one or two things and see how that feels and see what happens because of it. I know they say the old adage is only great things come out of coming out of your comfort zone or all growth happens that way. And that's true. But I really think that's where the magic of life happens. Mm. And we don't do it enough. And the only way to do that is to make it intentional. And so if you make it intentional, it'll happen. And you don't have to do massive things and leaps of faith. You can do small little things. You're going to see a lot of things start to open up for you very quickly. Jason, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And it's been fantastic being on your show. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.